Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button and the subscribe button if you're on YouTube. I'll be back in a second. In 2014, a billion dollars disappeared from three Moldovian banks. Republic of Moldova is a tiny landlocked country in Eastern Europe. How did a billion dollars do a vanishing act? That's 12% of the country's GDP. As the title of Bill Black's book says, the best way to rob a bank is to own one. And that's more or less what happened in Moldova. The heads of the three major banks created a Ponzi scheme between them, loaning and hiding money with each other, moving it offshore to hide the assets. A carousel borrowing scheme was applied. Loans at one bank were paid off with loans from another. The banking fraud in the United States that led to the crash of 07 and 08 makes the Moldovian scheme look like child's play. Here's the thing. In Moldova, many of those that were responsible for the fraud went to jail. In the U.S., other than one mid-level trader, it was none that went to jail. Not a single senior executive was ever charged in one of the biggest financial frauds ever. Has the situation changed? Could such a scam repeat itself? A docuseries titled The Con breaks down what happened during those years leading up to 2007-08. Here's a trailer from the film. I'm neither an economist or a scholar. I'm just an average American who lost my home and very nearly my family to foreclosure when the market imploded. And I've spent almost every day since trying to find out why. Once the dust settled, it quickly became clear that my story was no different than millions of other Americans. We all thought that we were alone. We all thought that we'd failed. But none of us really knew why. With a gun in her hand, Addie Polk apparently shot herself in the chest as deputies were knocking on her door with eviction papers in hand. This dramatic increase in mortgage fraud cases was the canary in the mine. It was the warning. This was money chasing people. This was not somebody looking for a loan. It was all designed to maximize profits for all of the different players. The person who sold you a loan made more money if they sold you a higher rate loan. They were sold a lot. They're selling to their very clients these loans that they know are a disaster. I lost my home, not because of money, because of fraud. I don't believe Addie Pope took out the mortgage on her home. I don't believe she signed any documents. They just generated all this junk, took home huge bonuses, and then when it collapsed, they said, oh, not us. This notion that the financial crisis was there wasn't fraud and there wasn't crime is absolutely wrong. It's dead. They were targeting, in many cases, minorities. We were waiting for the leadership to say, go. That never happened. The investigation was suppressed. This was all part of the same puzzle that was falling apart. This is the largest conspiracy of lies in the history of the world. This investigation has just begun. Now joining us to discuss the history and present state of what he calls control fraud is Bill Black, 
who's in the film and was an advisor to its producers. Bill's an American lawyer, academic, author, and former bank regulator with expertise in white-collar crime, public finance, regulation, and other topics in law and economics. In fact, he's an associate professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City in law and economics. As I mentioned, he's the author of the book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Thanks for joining us again, Bill. Thank you. So let's start with this term you use, control fraud. What is it, and and when does this start to appear in, in finance? Well, it started to appear in finance as soon as there were finance, uh, and it, it isn't unique to uh, finance uh, either. It's obviously an ungainly term. I mean, what the heck, control fraud? Uh, and here's the reason um, for the ungainliness. The insight we had was that when the people who control a seemingly legitimate entity, whether it's the government or a nonprofit or a for-profit firm, are able to use that seemingly legitimate entity as a weapon to defraud and predate and a shield that protects them largely against being held responsible, accountable, uh, for their depredations, then you're going to get massively more harmful forms of fraud and predation. And why control? Because the context we developed it in was the savings and loan debacle. And the most notorious fraud there was Charles Keating. And he never held a position with Lincoln Savings, the entity that he was using as his weapon and shield. Yet he utterly controlled every aspect of the institution. Okay, now assume that a lot of our viewers, especially younger ones, but others as well, have no idea what you're talking about. What was this, What happened at the savings and loan crisis? When was it? And out of that, what is? This, how did the control fraud appear? Okay, so by the way, as we uh, discuss this, is the 38th anniversary of one of the key events in that savings and loan debacle when that Charles Keating, who was the most notorious fraud, looting his savings and loan, was able to bring together a whole series of senators to try to extort first the head of our agency and then um, a group of us who were the regional regulators in San Francisco. And they went well, what's on to the, what's the agency? Us. The agency, the, well, the agency was called at the time the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, but it was about to change its name to the Office of Thrift Supervision. Uh, so that gets a little complicated. And we were in a regional entity that had a, still another name. So I'm, I'm going to avoid the names so much and describe what they functionally did uh, most of the time uh, in all of this. Um, in any event, we had we realized that if you controlled the firm, first, people wouldn't believe that you would loot the firm. That seemed crazy to them. But of course, if you think about it, that's who you can loot with impunity because you know where all the safeguards are. Indeed, you are supposed to be the principal safeguard. It's like a homeowner who wants to uh, commit 
uh, insurance fraud, right? You have a code <laughs> and you turn off the, the, the home alarm system and then you take the things out of your house. <laughs> you can do that very easily. Well, the CEO can do that even more easily. And the, what we realized was, hey, they just use seemingly normal corporate mechanisms to do this. They just use accounting to massively overstate earnings. And then under modern executive compensation, that automatically triggers a huge bonus. And the company pays the CEO and the other officers these huge bonuses. So if you stuck your hand in the till in America as a CEO and took just 10,000 bucks, you'd go to prison for 20 years. But you could take out 20 million, 40 million, 2 billion through the mechanisms I just explained and never go to jail. So what we discovered in the savings and loan crisis uh, was that fish rot from the head. When the CEO is the crook of a seemingly legitimate organization, they can cause vastly greater losses and damage um, precisely because of that seeming legitimacy. In finance, the weapon of choice is accounting. And what we discovered in the savings and loan crisis was that uh, there's a recipe. And the recipe has four ingredients. One, grow like crazy. Two, by making really crappy loans. Three, while employing extreme leverage, and that just means a whole lot of debt compared to equity. And four, while setting aside only trivial reserves for the inevitable losses that you're going to have. If you follow this recipe, it produces three sure things. One, the bank, the lender, will report record profits. They'll be fictional, but they'll report record profits. Two, under modern executive compensation, the CEO and the other senior folks will promptly be made wealthy. And three, down the road you're going to have catastrophic losses from all of this. Because if you think about it, that same recipe is a fabulous way of producing massive losses. The best way to get rich, title of my book, the best way to rob a bank is to own one. So this was a really sweet scheme that people had developed. And the way we figured it out is we did autopsies of every failure in the savings and loan debacle because everybody knew, everybody told us it's not fraud. It's not fraud. It's just people taking gambling for resurrection. It was almost Christian, you know, uh, type of thing, right? The bank was losing money. And so the valiant CEO just took high risk. And sadly, they often lost those high risk gambles and such. And we said, no, <laughs> that doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And here are two reasons it doesn't make any sense. So first, if you were just gambling, you wouldn't have the pattern of purported success 
that they were reporting, right? If you're taking a bunch of high-risk, honest gambles, you'd win some big, you'd win a few small, and you'd lose a lot big, right? That's now, what just, happens. These are, the gambles are loans they're making. That's right. They gamble make, making riskier loans went the, the logic, okay? And so you would see a pattern like that, right? Of some winners, some losers uh, type of thing. Except that everybody that followed this pattern that we identified as actually being looting, looting the savings and loan through accounting fraud, reported winning at first. And not just winning, but winning <laughs> at first, right? And they were literally reporting places like Lincoln Savings, uh, Vernon Savings, which we in the regulatory ranks refer to as vermin, right? Um, by the time we got through the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright's uh, efforts to, to prevent us from taking the place over, 96% of its loans were in default, <laughs> 96%. Give us an idea of this. How many banks were involved and when was this? This is during Reagan, is this? Is this, this, is Ra place? this is Ronald Reagan. Um, so this begins um, in 1981-ish. Uh, so right uh, at the beginning of the Reagan revolution. Uh, and it's facilitated the first appointee uh, as the top regulator for savings and loans by Ronald Reagan was an academic account uh, economist, Dick Pratt. Very smart, very quick, uh, clever guy type of thing, but a huge believer in laissez-faire. And so he deregulated and he said, hey, we have this, in jargon, it's called a natural experiment because there are many different jurisdictions of the United States, as you know, right? 50 different states, and they have different state regulatory patterns. So we'll look and find in all of the United States, which state has the most successful savings and loans. And then our deregulation will emulate their deregulation where they've already deregulated. And they looked and they said, Texas, Texas is the model that you need to follow. It's far and away reporting the best results. Well, of course it was. That's where the fraud started because that's where the deregulation started. And the frauds are a sure thing. They are mathematically guaranteed if you follow what we identified as the recipe for accounting control fraud for looting. If you follow that recipe, it is a sure thing, right? You will absolutely report record profits. They won't be real, but you'll report record profits. So he used the worst possible model for his deregulation. And then he deliberately set off what economists called a race to the bottom, which they thought was a good thing because... Regulation bad, deregulation good. Uh, remember this, in fact, it had begun with Jimmy Carter at the national level before uh, Ronald Reagan. Both parties really believed in this deregulation uh, stuff. So, great. Uh, Texas is deregulated already. 
Now, the United States at the federal level will deregulate even more than Texas. That will set off a race to the bottom where Texas and California will try to deregulate even more and for good reason. In the United States, we have this doctrine called supremacy uh, you know, of the federal government, so, which means that basically that we can preempt any state efforts that get in the way, right? So if the feds deregulate, the state can't do nothing to you. But if the state can't do nothing to your savings and loan to either help you or hurt you, why should you make political contributions to the state banking chairman of the Senate or House? Answer, you wouldn't. So there was a powerful incentive to keep the flow of money to the key committee chairman to deregulate. And California and Texas won the race to the bottom, right? And these two states produce 60% of the total losses out of the savings loan debacle of the 1980s and 1990s. So good policy, right? Uh, in all of these things. In our jargon, I have a doctorate in criminology uh, and I study elite fraud and corruption principally uh, within those fields. Um, this is going to mean uh, what we call a criminogenic environment. And that's a direct steal from natural science where we talk about pathogenic environment. An environment, you know, like a cesspool uh, that produces lots of bacteria and viruses and such and causes lots of infections. Well, you get the same thing happening throughout whatever portion of the economy you deregulate in, in particular finance is most susceptible to this. In my book, The Looser Effect, I talk about uh, this, uh, the slippery slope of evil. So all evil begins as taking small first steps. So, so the small first step, for example, um, the books are not balancing. And so Jeff Skilling of Enron goes to the uh, auditor at Arthur Anderson and say, gee, it's, it's Friday, we gotta leave, it's a little late. Just change these few numbers, we'll fix it back on Monday. Once that auditor makes that lie, cheats, then what happens on Monday, it's not working. So from warming the books, you have to start cooking the books. And over time, it gets worse and worse. And then you saw the, the crash of Enron and the crash of Arthur Anderson. And it was a, it's a wonderful example of starting with a small first step that led to the downfall of these two important organizations. And so it's really easy for a company to go down that slippery slope because corruption is really not at the institutional level, it's really at the level of one or more leaders who realize uh, they are in a position to get away with bigger profits and therefore get, get bigger uh, annual commissions, etc. So it's very easy when that switch flips from, you know, everything I do I say, what are the future consequences? It's what a future-oriented leader should always be doing. That is, every behavior has a consequence. Once you stop thinking about cause and effect and only, you know, if I do this, you know, what is the immediate return? Once you cross that line, it's very hard to go back because it get, you get just drawn in because now the stakes are ever higher, ever bigger. I can, I can make a bigger deal, I can make a better deal, and I can do it better than them. And what's interesting is most people are unaware 
because 2008 is ancient history for most people. But the evil that was started then is still embedded in our culture. So we have to make people aware that the devil is there. Lucifer is, is still around. He and or she is still doing bad shit. Uh, and we have, to, we have to oppose it. Okay, so they deregulated at the worst possible time in the worst possible way. And they said simultaneously, they put in writing, we don't have to worry about no stinking fraud. Fraud is inherently trivial, right? And, and I'm not overstating. I mean, it's not the exact words, but I'm not overstating. They said, Who said we don't that? have to worry about it. The head of the agency, a, a, a top academic economist, expert in finance, said- Well, I, were they in on it, the fraud? What my saying is of this era is, uh, always is, the sad fact is you didn't have to bribe anyone. <laughs> they really, really, really believed in laissez-faire. So to skip ahead a few years, um, there's this road to Damascus experience. It's, apparently it's a big biblical day in, in our talk. Um, of the his successor, Ed Gray. Now his successor is a personal friend, personal family friend, of both of the Reagans, Mrs. Reagan as well, critical to his survival. And he's a PR guy, right? That's his thing, PR. So in the midst of the worst financial scandal in US history at the time, President Reagan says, let me put a PR guy in charge. Because what the hell, right? And the trade association, which political scientists rated the third most powerful in the United States. It's called the, it was called the League of Savings Institutions. They go, the leadership, and tell Ed Gray, you're getting this position because of us. We lobbied with the administration and we lobbied to get you because we were sure you would do what we want done. They tell him this. And he tells us, the senior staff, this <laughs> like <laughs> type of thing. So this is the world. And then two things happen. First, the examiners, the examiners are the people that actually go out into the field and don't, they don't just look at what the institution writes in propaganda, you know, policies and such. They look at what's actually happening. So they're the people closest. And it turns out to be able to done, run the scams I'm talking about, you have to destroy what's called the loan underwriting process. Now that's insane because the loan underwriting process is what makes banks profitable, honestly profitable. They because evaluate the, under the, risk. the under Yeah, they evaluate the risk. They right? evaluate the risk. Should we take it? And if so, at what price, right? So it's the most critical thing that you would never do if you were an honest banker which is, of course, how, spoiler alert, we're going to convict of felonies over a thousand elites out of this savings loan debacle. Completely different uh, than what's going to happen in the great financial crisis. Okay, so Ed Gray comes in, and the first thing he does is he listens to the examiners. They put in every month the, uh, this significant supervisory cases. This is the coming problem. There are roughly 3,000 savings and loans. 
and the number in this SSC casebook grows from around 100 to around 500, okay? And they're short write-ups, but Gray reads them religiously, and he goes, oh, shit. <laughs> None of this is running the way, you know, the economists claim it's running. It's a coming disaster. And then he has the peak of his road to Damascus experience, this wonderful laconic Texan with a Texas, pronounced Texas twang, no art, no art at all. He's just talking like the, but in a Texas accent, but he knows his stuff, all about underwriting and such. And he drives and he's taking pictures on, uh, you know, like the uh, eight millimeter stuff in those days. This is 1982-ish, 1983-ish. So he's driving for miles with the camera stuck out and narrating as he's going along in an utterly no inflection voice. He's not excited. He's, Gray calls it financial pornography watching it because it's mile after mile after mile of real estate developments that aren't really being developed where they're just wasting all the material and you can see it rotting on the ground. And it goes on for over an hour driving around this huge complex. He even goes up in a plane and does the same thing looking down. And these, many of these things were so bad that they never got beyond the um, concrete pad for the home. And this is all, these are all phony loans for building these things. Right. And, and we call them Martian landing pads, <laughs> you know, type of thing. Gray, who's this ardent anti-regulator, ardent loves, I mean, he really loves Ronald Reagan and um, Mrs. Reagan goes, this is obscene and it's going to produce a catastrophe. It is my duty, though I hate it, hate it, to, to try to do everything. I, I have to throw myself in front of this bus. He predicts to us that it will destroy his career, both in business and in politics. And he's, you know, he's like 52 uh, prime, um, super high, you know, significant position and a, a riser and a personal friend, as I say, of the folks. And he knows it's going to piss off the Reagans. He starts re-regulating. Charles Keating, who uh, an alleged super Christian, who's actually a, a real um, massive fraudster, is an incredible lobbyist and since he's looting Lincoln Savings, what does he care? He knows the institution's going to fail. If you spend an extra $20 million on lobbying, so what? So he lobbies like crazy. He hires Alan Greenspan as a lobbyist. Alan Greenspan personally walks around the Senate recruiting the five U.S. senators who will become known as the Keating Five when they meet with us on April 9th, 1987, to try to extort us to not take enforcement action against Lincoln Savings 
on behalf of, and I quote, our good friend, Charles Keating uh, type of thing, right? When Gray begins this re-regulation, a majority at the express request of Charles Keating's lobbying effort, right? And, and Keating was a top 100 grantor, you know, a donor uh, to uh, uh, Reagan and Bush. So he was very politically connected. A majority of the House, a majority of the House of Representatives co-sponsored a resolution telling us to stop the re-regulation. The entire leadership of both parties in the House signed that. Right? So think of this. you got the president against you. The vice president, Bush, is running the Financial Deregulation Task Force. He hates you. The chief of staff, the former Marine, the former head of Merrill Lynch, hates you and is against you. OMB is trying to destroy you. OMB files a criminal referral against Ed Gray on the grounds that he's closing too many insolvent savings and loans. And how many had he closed by that point? But they were insolvent. Yes, but you have to understand the highest priority of the Reagan administration vis-a-vis -vis the savings and loan debacle at all times, the red line was that you could not say it's going to require a federal bailout. Because that would mean the deficit, the federal deficit, was really $150 billion bigger. And, and of course, President Reagan's top priority was getting the tax cut. And if the deficit and the argument against it was the deficit swelling. And so if they had to admit that the deficit was really much larger, they might not get the tax cut or the tax cut. And the whole of the bank debt was about 150 billion bucks? The whole in the insurance fund. So the industry was insolvent on a market value basis by roughly 150 billion. And there was $6 billion in the insurance funds till. So we went to work every day wondering whether there was going to be a nationwide run for five years. How much of this was public at this time? Did it was not made public because this was the red line, right? Gray knew that if he crossed this red line, he'd be removed immediately. So we just didn't talk about how much it was ultimately going to cost. We just went about trying to make sure it cost as little as possible. So thousands of banks are involved in fraud. Thousands no, of banks. 300. 300, 300, involved. 300 savings and loans were growing more than 50% annually and for following this looting strategy of fraud. But Gray's first action, which was before he saw the, you know, uh, Texas guys tape, the financial pornography, just reading the examiner's significant supervisory cases, the first thing he did, which was in November of 1983, which is essentially when the deregulation that his predecessor um, had put in place, was kicking in. Gray stopped any new 
savings and loans from starting in California and Texas and Florida. And that's where the frauds were almost always real estate developers who were failing. And of course, the dream of every real estate developer is to own their own captive lender, like a bank or a savings and loan, because that's what you need as a real estate developer, funding. And if you've got your own bank or savings and loan, that's never an issue uh, type of thing. So this was like the dream of all time for these sleazy developers. And whose money is in these savings and loan? Well, overwhelmingly ours, right? Uh, their deposits. In, in America, as opposed to other countries, the liability side of a bank is almost entirely deposits. And in the American context, almost all of those deposits are fully insured by the federal government. So who's on the hook, really? The taxpayers are on the hook, right? Europe has many more large loans, for, uh, typically from other banks. Um, that is uninsured hot money, as it's called, right? So that, you can see, Gray is going to commit political and career suicide and knows that he's going to commit it. The Trade Association, of course, instantly turns against him as well, right? And so if you look at the correlation of forces as the military talks about it, it's everybody on one side against Gray and, and pretty much Gray on the other. So obviously we're going to lose. And here's the remarkable thing. Yeah, we lost personally. We're unemployable, uh, you know, in government. But we stopped this raging epidemic of fraud and the new entrance, Gray, by saying, no more of these real estate developers are going to come in. Uh, the door in California and Texas and uh, Florida. He prevented it from becoming any kind of even mild recession, much less a great financial crisis. So, and, and that's just the second stage. We actually look at what caused the problems and we actually move to fix them, to give people confidence that they can do the things we're told to do invest, right, in a diversified portfolio, all that good type stuff. Well, that makes sense if it's an honest system. If it's dishonest, why would I put my money in that kind of system? In other words, when we stop the crooks, we make capitalism work, and only when we stop the crooks. And I'm not saying that regulation is always good or that more regulation is always the answer. It's not, ideology would suggest that you are either in favor of regulation or you're against regulation. Well, what if you're just in favor of smart regulation, better regulation, the most rational regulation possible? Where does that put you? I would suggest that at that point, you're making evidentiary-based decisions about what works the best rather than ideological decisions, more regulation, less regulation, which really doesn't make sense when you think about it. So to me, capitalism and smart regulation go hand in hand. You need them both. And one without the other, I, I just don't think it works. Honesty is good business. Rule of law makes honesty something can, that can actually prevail in a marketplace. Absent the rule of law and 
vigorous prosecutors and regulators, the cheaters will prosper. The third stage turns out to actually be the great financial crisis. And for that, you have to know what Gray's big legacy was. Gray did something really simple. He knew, as I said, that the two great disasters were California and Texas. So he asked everybody he had respect for, who were the two top financial supervisors in America? And then he personally recruited them and appointed them in California and in Texas. The guy in Texas was Joe Selby, who had twice risen through the ranks at the office of the Comptroller of the Currency to be acting Comptroller of the Currency. But of course, he would never be made head because you'd have to be, you know, politically powerful to, to get that kind of thing. So getting him was a real coup, and he put him in the absolute worst place, which was Texas. Selby knew that Selby was from Texas. Selby knew that this was going to end disastrously for him because Selby was gay. And the Speaker of the House, the Democratic Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, called up Ed Gray and demanded that Gray get rid of Selby on the grounds that Selby was a homosexual. This is how recently this these things were that badly screwed up. Even after we brought Charles Keating down, he sued. And one of his lieutenants began a deposition demanding to know who the employees were at the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco, where I was the top lawyer by then, were homosexuals under the allegation that, you know, gay is their secret of, and they must have a secret conspiracy against Charles Keating because he's a Christian. Oh, Jesus. And the chief judge, based on what we call a proffer by the lawyer, that says, I have a good faith basis for this conspiracy. I, I'm not just making this shit up, right? The judge, the chief judge in Arizona, which is where Lincoln Savings Home was, uh, the parent company, allowed those questions. Now, after that good faith basis, the second question of that lawyer was, have you ever heard a rumor about who might be a gay at the San Francisco Bank, which is kind of inconsistent with the proffer. Our uh, moderately senior supervisor who was being deposed came back at lunch break in, in absolute tears. She was just completely broken down by this outrageous treatment. And so this is the first I hear about it. And I say, the deposition is over. We're going to go for an emergency writ in front of the judge. And uh, of course, we destroyed them in that, that they had absolutely no basis. But at that hearing, they started the hearing by making a motion to exclude me from the courtroom. Oh, the lawyer. The, the lawyers for the Keating lieutenant say, 
you shouldn't allow Bill Black to be in this room. And the judge said, that may have worked with Danny Wall, Gray's success, infamous successor, who caves into Keating's demands and extortion, but it is not going to work in this courtroom. And then, because he'd been lied to in the proffer, he basically chopped the heads off these folks. But that lieutenant, I, you know, was, I saw in other depositions, and I went up to him and told him what, how scurrilous I thought he was. He said, I can't be bigoted. I'm black. Well, I guess you proved it. (laughs) Again, people, people forget how recently this kind of homophobia was absolutely dominant um, and could destroy executives. The point is, Selby prevented a Texas disaster from becoming a Texas catastrophe, knew it would lead, not under Gray, but under, you know, successors, uh, to his being smeared and fired and did it anyway for America. And Mike Patriarca, a name people have not heard, was his counterpart in California that I worked with. And he stopped the first aspect that I've talked about, this looting. Now I want to transition to the second aspect, which Patriarca also stops. And that is what becomes the great financial crisis, which actually is the third act of the savings and loan debacle of the early 1990s. So this is literally true. Orange County, California is the financial fraud capital of the world, not America, the world. And we were out in California, had jurisdiction uh, over it. And so, you know, the examiners came to us. Again, the examiners are the hero of this story. And they said, there's a new scam and you've got to stop it. What year are we in? So this is 1990, right? Um, There's a new scam and you've got to stop it now. So in 1990, we are still dealing with the second act of the savings loan debacle, the looting uh, that that I was talking about. And we are incredibly overwhelmed. uh, Is anybody... is anybody charged at this point? Oh yes, hundreds. All right, uh, but they. But you're right to ask. It it doesn't happen immediately, and and I'll bring me back. But I'll tell that story briefly. No one was being charged in the 1980s. There wasn't even a criminal referral system that was coherent. So first under Gray, Gray said, "Look, we got." Here are two top priorities. One, get the frauds out of controlling the savings alone. Because as long as they're in control, the losses are going to mount exponentially. Two, once you get them out, hold them personally accountable, wherever possible by criminal prosecution, also by uh, suits not against the savings alone, suits against them, where you uh, grab their funds. So, that's what we did. And so we de- figured out we had to develop a criminal referral system. So we started making referrals. And soon we were 
making thousands of referrals. And so we decided to make them public every month. Well, this is back in the day when there were actually more reporters at places, and pretty soon places like the Washington Post noticed there are 5,000 criminal referrals and only three prosecutions. What the hell's going on? And they would start writing stories. Criminal referral means your agency tells the Department of Justice there's a case here. It's a referral to the DOJ. Am I right? That is correct. And the FBI. Okay. Right. And so, and it, and they're not just, hey, we think we got a problem. And we had criminal referrals coordinators and they met um, periodically with their counterparts, the FBI and Department of Justice. We got feedback on every major referral. And then we would retrain po folks about, okay, this is what they want. They think is weak. This is the strong part. And it got better and better, continuous improvement regime and B-school type jargon. And so these became superb. In major cases, they were, the text was 40 to 60 pages and uh, 200 to 400 pages of attachments with all kinds of easy things about how to find uh, the most useful stuff. So we really set out the entire path to make the prosecution successful. So hundreds of these type of referrals and how many actual charges at that point? So thousands of these referrals. And, you know, in the mid 1980s, essentially two or three prosecutions. Right. So uh, the attorney general actually puts in his memoir that they just got tired of getting bashed <laughs> with all of this. So with when a new guy comes in after the disgraceful Danny Wall, who uh, you know gave in to the pressure of the five senators and the Speaker of the House, um, the new guy was Tim Ryan. This is Bush one, right? Appointing Tim Ryan to be the new head of the agency. Now Tim Ryan is first cousin to Meg. <laughs> Right. Um, and very bright lawyer. And he hires a very aggressive litigator um, as his person, because as he explains to me personally, he met with Bush and Bush said, your job is to get the heads of the most prominent crooks on pikes. OK, new regime, right, uh, type of thing. So by then. Again, he gets appointed in like 1992-ish and such. There are over 20,000 criminal referrals. In fact, by then there were 30,000 criminal referrals. 30,000, okay? And by then there were a meaningful number of uh, prosecutions, but Tim Ryan also sacrificed his career for the public, knowingly. And what he did is bring an enforcement action, and we massively increased enforcement actions as well. He brought an enforcement action against the son of the sitting president of the United States of America. <laughs> and so he's been unemployable since in government. Which one? Neil. Neil Bush. He's the guy that brought that enforcement action. And everybody knew what was going to happen if he did that. He he was, you know, a super fast tracker. 
if you go back to Gray and the and the gentleman you're talking about now and you and your team, if if all of you had caved to the pressure, what would have happened? The great something akin to the great financial crisis would have happened in the mid 90s. Which means these banks would have all failed. The federal insurance plan would have to have stepped in at the rate of. Oh, it couldn't have. It couldn't have. Uh, They would have had to bail out the insurance uh, plan, not in terms of billions, which they did eventually, but in trillions of dollars. Now, the Reagan administration, the professionals, even on Wall Street, they must know this is how it's unfolding. And they, uh, you, you said earlier, they don't want this to go public because how do you do a tax cut in the midst of all this? So, I mean, it's really part of the fraud that this keeps getting covered up. Yeah, but I would uh, go easy on the idea that they knew, right? Remember the conventional wisdom that I gave you from Dick Pratt was, well, fraud by elites can't ever be serious. Right. One person doing a $20 check is serious. Well, they look like us. They can't be real crooks. You know, they dress nicely. They speak well. They can't be real crooks. They can't cause real problems. But when Gray gets his head around how serious this is, and he's a friend of Reagan, he must tell Reagan. uh, So from at least that point on. Nope. They're. Nope. No. And uh, your point is absolutely logical. And I went to Ed Gray to make exactly that point. I said, you're a personal friend. Tell him. And he said, you don't understand. It's impossible. Hmm. And I guarantee you he's right. Because I know Ed Gray, not because I know Ronald Reagan. No, but I actually... If Ed Gray Ray, says it was absolutely impossible, it was. Yeah, but from what I'm learning about Reagan, you know, I've just been interviewing the guy who, Matt Trinauer, who did this four-part series called The Reagans for Showtime and reading some other stuff. Uh, Reagan didn't want to hear what he didn't want to know, not because he didn't know, but he didn't want to hear what he didn't want to know. Yeah, but here, what is he Because that was his job was... Nothing. He just knows that the people that help make him president want it such and such. So he doesn't go against them. But you don't, as human beings, we are primed for those people that help us the most. They're, we're, they're the last people in the world we see as cheats and fraudsters. And Charles Keating was one of his leading donors. Yeah, was Keating part of that kitchen cabinet that helped get Reagan to run? No, but Ed Gray was at the savings and loan that was at the heart, the San Diego savings and loan that was at the heart of that kitchen cabinet. Because, I mean, they deliberately created Ronald Reagan to be a front man for their agenda. But, but again, that's the point, right? So Don Regan is his consigliere. Don Regan is the self-professed Marine tough guy who his first words out of his mouth when he meets Ed Gray is, you're going to be a team player, aren't you? And felt that he could intimidate folks. And by the way, 
the very first thing the Bush administration did within months, its first major legislative proposal was to make sure that this could never happen again. Now, this is not the crisis. This is Ed Gray. Could never happen again. So, oh, really? the <laughs> yeah. So the, oh. le the first thing the legislation did is we were an independent regulatory agency and they eliminated that and made it a bureau within the treasury member of the executive branch so that there could never be someone independent using their judgment again. I'm quite serious. That's the first thing that they decided to get away with. All right. So again, you get this immensely successful prosecution and, and let me uh, make cl clear how successful this was. Our key strategic disadvantage, of course, was money in the form of lobbying and the form of charitable, uh, not political contributions, right? That's how um, the terrible things was happening. That's how at the behest of Charles Keating, the most notorious fraud in America, our jurisdiction in San Francisco was removed over Keating at the demand of the five senators and the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, and the cowardice of Gray's successor, Danny Wall. Right? He, for the first time in U.S. regulatory history, he removed the jurisdiction at the demand of the crooks because we had insisted on going forward with our recommendation that it be placed, taken over by the federal government, and we had made a criminal referral. And you're including these senators in the crooks, these five. Well, they were assisting the crooks. Now, they, you can see my notes of the meeting, which is what made it um, something before the Senate Ethics Committee. We ultimately, the only way to get them to back off was to tell them we were about to make a criminal referral. And do they really want to be going full force? for a massive felon. Okay, we're going to end this here and do a, a part two. And I don't know how many other parts, but we're going to let this story unfold. And in the next part, I'm going to start by asking Bill, uh, a thousand prosecutions or more. Uh, some people actually went to jail um, out of all this. And by 2007, 2008, as, as this whole subprime and the crisis that unfolds an, another massive, essentially, uh, financial fraud, uh, the people involved are not very worried about going to jail. So why, when so many people eventually did go to jail, do the next crop of these fraudsters uh, seem absolutely unconcerned that this is going to come down on their heads? So we're, we'll take that up in the next part with Bill. Uh, thanks for joining us on the analysis.news. Thank you, Bill. And uh, look forward, just keep looking out for the for part two of our series. Mm -hmm.